One, two, three, four. Screen time, screen time, screen time, screen time. Screen time. It's my screen time too. Screen time. Hello, and welcome to It's My Screen Time Too, the podcast where two moms review the best and worst in children's programming, from Netflix reboots and YouTube shorts to Disney classics and Pixar blockbusters. We watch, you listen. Find out what you can tolerate watching for family movie night, what to avoid altogether, and what you'll want to watch alone voluntarily. I'm Deborah, And I'm Katie. And I have three kids. Tony is 10 and Libby and Nate are seven. And I have two kids. Jay is four and Kenny is one. <laughs> They're pretty adorable, aren't they? Most of the time. We like to tell a really quick story about how awesome or occasionally awful our kids are because in addition to being witty and incisive pop culture consumers, we're moms too. Deborah, what adorable stuff have your kids been doing this week? So Libby is taking violin lessons and Nate has been taking piano and... Libby was playing Go Tell Aunt Rhody, and Nate realized that he also has Go Tell Aunt Rhody in his piano books, and they together impromptu decided to try to play a duet. Oh, Yeah, and unfortunately, like, the, the songs were not in the same key in their books, and neither one can really easily transpose. What? Music. You mean they can't transpose yet? Deborah? what? <laughs> so they actually, I try to show Nate like how to just play it up a step, but it was, it sounded good in like the first measure. And then they started over and Nate was like, well, let's try again at a moderate tempo. <laughs> and they were just like two little musicians collaborating. And it was like, Katie, that's why I became a mom. Oh, Deborah, that is the cutest thing. So that someday my children can play musical duets together. I feel like that's it. <laughs> Accomplishment <laughs> unlocked. <laughs> they have first little jam sesh. I like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How about Kenny and Jay? Well, they have not started playing duets together yet. <laughs> so, you know how sometimes kids accidentally say profound things? Yes. So, we have a real problem with bathroom boundaries in our house. Like, either the kids just storm into the bathroom if it's unlocked, or if it's locked, they just, like, essentially break down the door. So I was trying to go to the bathroom and Jay would not leave me alone. And I told him that we could talk about it later. And he says, Mom, later is the next now. Wow. Mm -hmm. And he blew my mind. Later is the next now. <laughs> All right. Should we move on to screen time in the news? Yes, you picked a really good article. So this week, we are discussing the June 8th article from Slate called Confused About Screen Time and Disinformation, You Aren't Alone by Lisa Guernsey. Now, I am a Slate member, so I pay for my subscription. Deborah, this wasn't behind a paywall for you, was it? I clicked on it and could read it. Okay. Maybe good. they have like a limit, a limit 
of free articles. That's possible. I know their paywall is fairly recent, so I'm not super sure how it works. But listeners, if you can check it out, you should. This was a great article about the problem of online disinformation. And just the fact that all of these rumors and false claims are swirling all over the place about every single crappy thing we're going through right now, be it coronavirus, be it the ongoing protests, be it uh, the 2020 elections, there's no shortage of just plain false claims masquerading as truth online. And while we all laughed at that Geico commercial where the woman had the French boyfriend who wasn't really French that she met online and she just trusted. <laughs> it's actually kind of really how people behave online. So the I kind of questioned the premise at the beginning of this article when the author claimed that, quote, we have had little to no guidance on what the good stuff, meaning good stuff online, even looks like. I don't know about that. I mean, I'm an elder millennial, and I definitely had some degree of media training as far as how to evaluate a source. And I'm not talking about library school, because obviously we had a lot of it there. But did you get any of that as a kid? Yeah, for sure. So especially about advertising and how tricky advertising advertisements can be. Mm-hmm. Um, so her initial claim that we all get a pass because we were never taught this is a little dubious, but the bulk of the article goes on to talk about how we need things she calls media mentors and trusted digital navigators to help teach us how to correctly evaluate these online sources and how to teach our kids to recognize bogus claims as well. They talk about the different kind of people that can work as media mentors and digital navigators. There was a really depressing statistic about the fact that due to budget cuts, half of California's public schools don't have school librarians, which just really made me cry. Um, But they talked about some other sources for good information. Our beloved Crash Course, which we covered last summer in our YouTube for the Summer series, apparently has a video for kids about how to navigate online information. Their paragraph on public libraries, or the author's paragraph on public libraries was actually kind of hilarious because she was talking about these different people and these different resources that you can use to increase your digital literacy. And then she talks about how public libraries are getting in on the act, but only by helping you find ebooks and doing story times, which listeners, if you don't know this, your local public library can help you get the resources to find out if something is bogus or true online. Librarians can help you learn how to manage that as well. They don't just check out books. Yeah, I feel like maybe in that paragraph, the author knew like a couple of librarians and checked in with them. Yeah. It wasn't a very thorough examination of what the profession is doing it was also in the previous paragraph when she was talking about media mentors she just mentioned like a couple of college professors that are doing fairly small scale things like just answering emails from students which to my mind wasn't terribly helpful because we don't all have helpful college professors in our back pocket Mm -hmm. but 
maybe that's just a sign that there aren't very many good resources to help us navigate this time. Sadly, late in the article is when she decides to bring up the fact that if you're reading this article, you probably already have at least a little bit of a grasp of the problem of online disinformation. And the real issue is trying to, quote, expand the circle of people who want to learn. And that, to me, is the larger problem. Yes. Because certainly in today's media environment, I feel like you can confront people with 50 different sources that contradict a single source and they just claim that those 50 different sources are lying, right? Yeah. I mean, the line in the article is what about the people not even aware there is a problem? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, did this article give you any hope? It gave me some tools that I can use to educate my kids, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, because Tony's at an age where he'll look things up online and he is 10. So it's hard for him to tell what's real, what's not a good source. Um, I'm going to use that like lateral reading technique Mm -hmm. described by a professor at Washington state university. Instead of just checking a website for it's about page, open a tab on your web browser and just do a simple keyword search to see what other sources have written on that topic. It's pretty simple. Yeah, I thought that sounded like a really useful tool. I mean, you and I are, I don't know, I guess I describe myself as a failed library professional. So we're pretty aware of like these issues and what can be done about them. I really think the problem is when you have people in your circles who don't know that they have a problem, who think that like reading comments on a Facebook group thread is doing research. Right, right. That is troubling. And and sadly, I don't think this article gives very effective tools to deal with that. But you're right. It does give some good resources that we can use as people who already are aware of the problem to up our game and certainly to teach our kids. And advocate, you know, for our schools to have media literacy literacy as part of the curriculum. My heart did break a little. There's a paragraph where she talks about how overburdened teachers are already, and with the cutting of school library professionals, now it's the classroom teacher's job to then teach media literacy skills with no background in teaching these things. It made me think of a friend of mine who is, a teacher, an English teacher, and now her department has foisted responsibility for teaching the Holocaust onto English teachers. So they only what? teach it in the context of the Diary of Anne Frank, and they apparently decided they don't have time for it in the history curriculum anymore. So it was just like, oh, she's already overburdened by like suddenly having to teach history and now media yeah. literacy as well. Oof. We expect a lot of our teachers, and we don't pay them current commensurate to what we respect. We wow, I can't speak English. We don't pay them enough for what we expect them to do. There we go. Those are words coming out of my mouth in sentence form. <laughs> <laughs> so to follow up from our last episode, Katie, you found an old Quartz article from 2019 that describes what qualifies as a Netflix original. 
because we were talking about what is a Netflix original? Does it mean they created it? Because they've got things labeled as Netflix originals that they didn't create. So this article, and I'm quoting, says Netflix uses the term original to delineate between movies and series that are exclusive to its platform and those that are aggregated from other studios after first being made available elsewhere. Original can refer to a few things, content such as Stranger Things that are self-produced, programming like Narcos that are licensed exclusively from other studios and branded as Netflix originals, or licensed content such as You and Riverdale that may air on TV in some markets but stream first on Netflix in other parts of the world. Unquote. So basically anything can be a Netflix original. So I guess that explains how Doozers aired elsewhere in 2012 and didn't end up on our screens here in the U.S. on Hulu as a Hulu original until recently. Yeah, it's like super umbrella term. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also just, this is really apropos of nothing, but I wanted to make the case quickly for summer game shows. I don't know if you've been watching any game shows with your kids this summer. Last summer, we were super into Holy Moly and we're excited about it again this summer. But there are even more. I don't know if it's a COVID-related like production thing where they needed really simple things to put in the tank. But we've been watching this show on Netflix called Floor is Lava. Oh, can you guess how it works, Deborah? A game that we've played at our house. Yes. I think it's a game that every parent has been forced to play. Yeah. Um, so it's like a souped up version of that where like teams have to like scale around this room to try and get to the escape. And if one of the team members fall into the lava, they like really commit to the whole no. <laughs> but it's is it just like carpet? No, it's like it, the room is filled. It, maybe it's water. It's some okay. sort of red liquid that they have like splashing up all over the place. Um, but yeah, that's on Netflix. It's been really fun. I never previously considered myself to be a fan of shows like this. But it turns out that I think it's kind of great content that I can watch with my kids, not worry about it being inappropriate for them, and still enjoy myself. It's in no way educational. It's not like brain food. But if we're all going to sit down and actively enjoy something together, I think this kind of fits the bill. Yeah, I think it's there's value to all enjoying the same show at the same time. It doesn't have to be like good for your brain. Mm-hmm. For my family, it was the Cosby show. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a follow-up from last episode. I cooked radishes. (gasps) You did? What did you think? I forgot to send you Um, that recipe. I'm sorry. That's okay. They were good. I threw them into a frittata, which is what I do with like when the the CSA vegetables are kind of wilting and a hodgepodge, like I just make a frittata. And so it was good. Yay. Yeah. Thanks for the tip. I wouldn't have thought to put them in the scramble. I'm gonna say to I'm gonna say again that I'll send you that recipe and hope that I will remember. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about today's show. We watched Number Blocks. It's a British program that originally aired beginning in 2017 on CBBS, a children's channel from the BBC. And in the U.S., it can be found on Netflix or on YouTube. 
It's produced by a company called Blue Zoo Productions, and they partnered with the National Center, C-E-N-T-R-E, because it's British, for excellence in the teaching of mathematics in England. And that seems to have been developed with the UK equivalent of common core standards. Number blocks as a concept seems very logical, but it was apparently preceded by Alpha Blocks. The show's website, learningblocks.tv slash numberblocks, explains that the show's episodes are divided into five color-coded levels. They're pretty easy to discern on YouTube, and on Netflix, they're broken up into seasons. So level one is numbers up to five, level two up to 10, level three numbers up to 20, four up to 50, and level five is numbers up to 100. So it just get, builds upon itself and gets increasingly advanced. Each episode is like five minutes and it's these colorful little blocks that combine to tell stories and teach kids about numbers through songs and skits. Each number has its own personality and when it combines with another number, like if three combines with one to make four, then four is like a whole new character. And we picked it because I talked about El Perro y El Gato last week, but Katie, you fell in love with the number of blocks instead. I know. Like we talked about last week, I was really looking for something that would suit both Jay and Kenny. And I just stumbled upon this and it seems to have really fit the bill. That's great. It was a cute cute thing I had never heard of it and I'm glad that you picked it well I'm so excited to talk about it with you (laughs) well can you summarize the first episode sure and we since these episodes were so short we did it a little differently than we normally do we watched three episodes together we (laughs) with the intent of discussing three specific episodes we each watched two episodes separately there we go that works (laughs) but be honest have you binged the whole series oh I've seen every episode (laughs) (laughs) uh so the first episode we watched was the very first episode one and in it, we are introduced to the number block one, who is just a little red block with one eye and sings a song called, let me get out my notes. What is the song called? One Wonderful World and One Me. And it's one running around seeing one bee, one ant, one tree, one of everything around and realizing how powerful it is to be able to count to one. What did you think, Deborah? I'm so excited. It was kind of like a creation story, like what I imagine the experience of the first amoeba ever that emerged from the like primordial soup of the ocean felt like, probably. Like, I'm I'm here. <laughs> but way cuter. And also, it seemed like, I mean, I know there are people who are like COVID quarantining by themselves, And I wonder, it was a little, reminded me of the song, One is the Loneliest Number, a little bit. But this was a very, like, uplifting take on being one. Yeah. And were we introduced to the magic mirror in this episode? Mm, I don't think so. Okay. So, spoiler, guys. But eventually we find that there's a magic mirror in Numberland. And if a number block looks into it, their reflection then becomes a new number block. 
I don't think I saw that at all. It's their asexual reproduction. Got it. Okay. All right. Should we move on to the second episode? Sure. We watched, and this is from season two, episode two, title seven. In this episode, the numbers one and six combine in a collision under a rain cloud and they create seven, which is a lucky rainbow color number block. And it's made up of the seven colors of the rainbow and the song that it does involves the seven days of the week. The thing I loved about this episode is it really drove home how distinct they've made each of the numbers up to this point because Mm -hmm. the seven number block has all the colors of the numbers that came before and each color represents a color from the rainbow. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was such a creative way to conceptualize the numbers and tell them apart. It was like, I don't think of seven as having any real distinct characteristics, but it is like a very unique number. It's a prime number, right? It's prime. A lot of things come in sevens when you explore it via that preschool song. And it was all about being lucky number seven, right? Where did the phrase lucky number seven come from? I have no idea. Is it a gambling thing? I don't know. I have no clue. Uh, Clearly, we've done a lot of research. (laughs) (laughs) So the third episode we watched was the second to last episode. And it was season five, episode four, called 1001. And not surprisingly, it explored numbers larger than 100. And it just epitomized everything I love about number blocks. Because it was all about thinking about numbers in a logical, new way. Like the 100 is a great big square, 10 by 10. And then when they start talking about 1,000, all of a sudden it becomes a cube and it's 10 by 10 by 10. What a great way to think about 1,000. I don't know. I just... (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking, like, how are they going to show 1,000? It's going to be so much bigger than 100. And then when it became a cube, I was like, wow, this show is really brilliant. Yeah. They really thought all this stuff out, and I just couldn't help but be impressed by that at every step. Have you ever been inside a like a Montessori preschool classroom? Uh, yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. And they have. Have you seen like the counting beads? This show reminded me of that because it's a very tactile experience in a Montessori classroom, and I could just like. I was having like the same experience watching this that I have like looking at Montessori beads. Yeah. What did you watch on your own? I watched just one. We were supposed to watch two and I could only fit in <laughs> How one. How could you stop? All right. So what one measly episode did you watch on your own? <laughs> I watched the big one uh, from season five, episode two, where they count to 100. Uh-huh. And honestly, Katie, it was kind of boring. (gasps) No. (laughs) Boring in the way, like, if you have a preschooler who's like, I can count to 100. (laughs) And they want you to listen. Oh, no. And you're like, awesome. No, you skipped 67. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to admit, I don't remember the particulars of that episode, but man, it makes me sad you didn't like it. It was just like sort of pedantic because like 
they just literally have a big block of numbers and they just keep piling on like by the tent, like by the tens, but they count each one. You know, for a child who's learning their numbers, I think it's wonderful. For me, who's just not even a big math person in this first place, <laughs> I don't need to watch it again. I think it does behoove us to say that the higher the numbers get, the fewer episodes you have. So it's not as if they spend an entire episode on 87 88, 89, like the early numbers, they spend individual episodes on each number from one to 20, but then they move through much more quickly. So I feel confident in saying that your experience with the big one is not typical of number blocks in general, because it's not usually just them counting to X number and that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. Right. So let me go ahead and recommend two other episodes that you should watch because they okay. were great. <laughs> the first is the number 12, who is born of a collision between 10 and 2. And you learn that 12 is a super rectangle. And 12 teaches you how columns and rows make an array and how 12 is an awesome number because it can be an array that's 1 by 12 or 2 by 6 or 3 by 4 or 4 by 3 or 6 by 2 or 12 by 1. So they show you all these different shapes. And again, it was just a really creative way to conceptualize a number. The barest hint of an introduction to multiplication you see like all the other number blocks characters, like when the 12 turns over and it's like, I'm now four by three, like it separates. And then you get four of the little three number blocks. Mm -hmm. It was just, it was exciting. <laughs> that does make me want to watch it. <laughs> You're good at selling this show. What else did you watch? And then I watched 15 because as I'm sure I've mentioned, Jay is obsessed with spies so number 15 is a super special step-shaped secret agent. And the thing that makes number 15 special is you get 15 when you add 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5. And when you arrange them, it looks like a staircase. So oh, well, that is cool. Yeah. So 15 is always like inserting herself into situations like, oh, someone's trying to get up, get down a mountain and 15 sits there and they don't even realize they're walking down 15. They just think it's a set of stairs because she's a secret agent. <laughs> nice. I feel like there was a lot more plot in the early episodes. Definitely. I think the when they get to the bigger numbers, it's more of a payoff. Like, look at how much you've learned up to this point. Mm -hmm. Now you can reach this greater conceptual plane. <laughs> yeah. So overall thoughts about the show. This is a silly question to ask you. Do you like the concept? How many different ways can I say it? I love, love, love the show. I thought it had interesting things for Jay as a four-year-old, almost five-year-old, interesting things for Kenny, like he was laughing at the different antics of the different blocks, and interesting things for me because I definitely feel like math was not introduced like this to us when we were kids. It was very much memorize your addition mm -hmm. tables, do the times tests, and you know make sure that you can do all of that in what, five minutes? Did you have to do those? Oh, yeah. I remember. Yeah. 
timed multiplication. Yeah. Like the purple mimeographed sheets where you Mm -hmm. just had to like essentially memorize all the addition. And I just thought it was a great way to think about numbers instead of just as something inert and dull, something active that changes and has interesting things. I could go on and on and I will, but how about you? (laughs) I liked it a lot. You pointed out that Peg plus cat was the only other math show we've covered. There's like lots of shows that cover like language, um, science, but there seems to be a little bit of a dearth of math based preschool. I think it goes back to what you were saying about there being less plot in the later episodes. It's just so Mm -hmm. much easier to come up with a plot when you're talking about language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this was clearly designed by like the best and brightest minds on early childhood development and math curriculum. It was really good. Now, I know you didn't spend much time with the lower numbers. Did you have time to get a favorite among the cast? I really liked seven. I also liked five and how five was like just a little more, looked a little more clumsy Mm -hmm. because of the way five is put together. How about you? Did you have a favorite? Oh, man. If you liked five, you're going to love 19. (laughs) Because poor 19 realizes that however she sets herself up, she can never make a rectangle. But then she learns that she can celebrate that. She calls herself a one-off because she's always one-off of being a rectangle. Oh, I do want to watch that. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if I have any favorites. I love them all. I guess the only one that annoys me is three. Oh, man, three. I'm so glad you have so many characters. Did you recognize any of the cast? Uh, as far as the voice work? No, but I loved all the different accents. Right. Do you have any thoughts on the animation? Again, just a really creative way to visually differentiate things as simple as blocks representing numbers. They did really manage to create distinct characters visually for each one. And I thought that was really impressive. Yeah. And even like the backgrounds were visually um, simple, but but in an interesting way. Minimal, I guess. You know, I forgot to put this on the deck, but what did you think of the music? Because there's a song in almost every episode. I thought they were cute. It was like very catchy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, this is another really short one, and I promise I didn't do it on purpose this time. I legitimately did just fall in love with number blocks, but what did you think about the length? For me, it was a good length for this week, just because I had a lot of parenting to do. Um, I think it's a really good length for a preschooler. Mm -hmm. Really great, because you can watch a couple of them. You can watch one. Um, I imagine Kenny doesn't have like a whole lot of sit down and focus time yet. No. (laughs) 
So for that age group that it's aimed at, I think it's really good. I think also like for a teacher in a classroom, it's a great length Mm -hmm. because they can kind of like use it as like an intro to capture kids' attention, but it's not taking up the whole, you know, whatever, 25 minutes they have to spend on math. It's just a little bite-sized bit of animation. And speaking of teaching, I did see on their website that there are apps available, and I thought about checking them them out, and then it just flew from my brain, kind of like how speaking the English language flies from my brain every time we sit down to record this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But those could be interesting to check out as well. So did you compare this to any movies or shows for grownups? I mean, it made me think of any good show that involves a troop of people doing a lot of different things. I thought Mm -hmm. a little bit of Monty Python, the old classic from my childhood, even though it was really from before my childhood, but I watched it a lot growing up. How about you? Um, I was trying to think of something like a show that made numbers fun. And remember Susie Orman? I don't know if she has a show anymore. Why is that name familiar? Tell me more. She's like a financial guru. And I feel like she had like a call-in show where people would call in with like money dilemmas. Hmm. And she would be like, don't buy a new car. (laughs) And just make it like, I mean, personal finance. I don't know. It can be kind of dry if you're just reading like, you should put away this percentage of your paycheck. Mm -hmm. But when you add like the human element and the like emotions to it, then it's actually a super interesting topic. Right. Cause we are not rational in any of our choices. (laughs) Right. And just like you were pointing out with like the purple Xerox sheets where you do the times multiplication test, that's boring. But if each number has a personality (laughs) yeah that's exactly that's a good point (laughs) yeah (laughs) were you able to cast the gritty hbo reboot all right so part of me wanted like a really raunchy comedy troupe to do the numbers but then i thought it would just be fun to get the cast of parks and rec back Mm -hmm. uh, and i thought they could really easily represent all the different numbers up to 20 because pawnee had such a varied cast of characters so I thought that would be fun. I just cast one through five and I tried to come up with actors who have like very distinct personalities. Mm. So number one would be played by James Corden and number two would be played by Margaret Cho because I feel like she is very dry and prickly. Okay. Compared to James Corden's like he's very sincere and upbeat. Three would be Sterling K. Brown. Four would be Kenan Thompson. Because you get like a very, I don't know, like a very capable, dramatic actor juxtaposed with like a brilliant improv person. I like it. Um, And number five would be, uh, I think it's Rachel Brosnan, the actress who plays Mrs. Maisel. Mm -hmm. Not sure if I'm saying her name correctly. And that's as far as I got, but I can (laughs) keep going. Well, now I feel bad for saying that I didn't like three. Oh, (laughs) I don't have anything against Sterling K. Brown. He seems like an upstart guy. (laughs) Upstanding guy. I cannot speak. My goodness. Okay. Do you think it was better when we were kids? No. Definitely not. I'm sure we already had this conversation when we did Peg Plus Cat, but can you even think of math shows? No, I can just think of like, wasn't there like a 
Barbie talking game or doll who was like, math is hard. Oh, no. Oh, I hope not, but probably. (laughs) (laughs) Would you ever watch this alone voluntarily? I almost want to say yes, but the truth of it is I don't need to because it's perfectly good for my kids, but I will not even mind watching it a million times over. I was going to say no, but you have me really intrigued by 19. I think I might try to squeeze that in after this while I'm my kids think I'm recording, recording the podcast in my room. I can't wait to hear what you think. <laughs> 10 seconds on whether this is good for our kids. I think you know my answer. Yeah, it's great for kids. Ratings? Five. You look like you knew I was going to reach through and strangle you if you didn't say that. Yeah. Five. <laughs> five. Yes. Five all the way. <laughs> well, thank you for listening to this episode of It's My Screen Time 2. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can check out our website at myscreentime2.com. You can still find us on Facebook to continue the conversation at facebook.com slash myscreentime2. That's also where you'll find out what we're covering in our next episode if you want to watch along with us. You can tweet us with show or movie suggestions, article recommendations, or general comments at at myscreentime2. Or you can email us at myscreentime2 at gmail.com. Our theme music was composed and performed by Deborah and her adorable children, and our podcast is produced by me, Katie. Tune in next time for more real talk about the movies and TV beloved by kids and tolerated by parents. Bye! Bye. Screen time! Screen time! Screen time!